Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we are revisiting the Hellraiser series. We have been here before. We will be here again. Maybe one day we'll do a miniseries. There's just so many of them. I'm excited to be talking about the 2011 era Hellraiser reboot by our friends Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer. But most importantly, we have a very exciting guest with us today. Um, he is a coworker with me at Dread Central. We have, all right, and correct me if I'm saying your last name wrong, Tyler. We have Tyler Dupe. You that got can't it. be right. You I got, got it right. right. It's Tyler oh, Dupe. I get to it keep must, this in then. So. It must be because you're Canadian with all of the French. Uh, it's gotta be that. It's gotta be that. With all of the French stuff. Too much French stuff, to be honest. Too much <laughs> French stuff in Canada. No, gotta cut that. That's racist. Hi, Tyler. Um, <laughs> keep it. I'm gonna keep it. Welcome to Development Hell. This is your first time here. I'm so excited to have you here. I was wondering, could you introduce yourself to the Development Hell audience? I would love to introduce myself, but first I must say thank you so much for having me and that it's my pleasure to be here. In terms of who I am, I am a staff writer at Dread Central. I also work as the managing editor at wickedhorror.com. I've had bylines in Fangoria, Rue Morgue, and Scream magazines, uh, the Sci-Fi Wire website, the Fandango movie blog, RIP, mm-hmm. and just kind of across the internet. And I, like I said, just could not be happier to be here today. So thank you again. So we're bringing in Hellraiser. We're going to get to our relationships with Hellraiser. But first, I'm going to say, you brought this as a topic. What I'm wondering, what came first for you? The interest in following Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer as filmmakers or the Hellraiser franchise? Like, which one was the draw? Oh, probably Farmer and Lucier. I love mm. their collaborations. I love Trick so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, for what it is, I really like my Bloody Valentine. You know, it's not, it's oh, not really the original, but I think it's a really fun companion piece. Uh, I enjoy Drive Angry. I think I'm one of probably a small number of people that actually really liked that movie, just considering <laughs> it's kind of a box office bomb. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think it's a, a whole lot of fun. And uh, I love 
you know, I mean, I, I, I love both of them, you know, together. I love them uh, individually, you know, even their projects that didn't necessarily land for everyone. You know, I think there's a lot to enjoy still about Dracula 2000. I love, I love it. If you're I, not too critical, not too picky, you know, and just kind of take it for what it is. Never mind Dracula um, 2000. What about Dracula Ascension, Dracula Legacy? Who knows what the third one's called? Into the Mall, into the Mall, quicker down the line. But my big question for you right now, Hellraiser in you. Like, where do you, where, where is it with you in terms of like your franchises in the horror realm? Is it a top, t- top tier, middle of the realm? What's your relationship with Hellraiser? It's in some ways kind of an odd man out for the fact that um, the first two are so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, just really good. And then it just kind of, you know, goes downhill from there. And uh, even Judgment, which sort of got it. I don't know, a little bit back on track, uh, mm-hmm. was not great. So, I mean, it's it's just, there's a little bit of good and then there's so much bad. So I mm-hmm. guess on that basis, it, it's somewhere in the middle for me. You know, like but if, if it were just the first two films, I mean, those, those are near perfect. So uh, they are. that's what keeps it from being, I think, lower on the list is just that th- those first, first two just really hit a cinematic sweet spot. Uh, they're <laughs> scary, they're sexy, they're just so many different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have so much love for both of them. The third one though, for me is very transitional because it's not as good as the first two, but it's a whole lot better than almost everything that followed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of that weird middle of the road type deal. It, it, the acting is just so bad. I mean, it's, it's not incredible in the third one. And you and I are actually going to be talking pretty in depth about Hellraiser 3 today. The truth of the matter is I, is, I had never seen it before recording today and it is the first of the dimension films hellraiser series so we thought why not get into it a little bit but i'm a fan i was just saying to tyler they're a little gross for me sometimes gore horror and me have a hard time being in the same room i can handle it because it's incredible and it's queer but sometimes that's hard for me i love really shitty direct-to-DVD sequels from the middle of the 2000s. That's a sweet spot for me. And because of that, this series kind of... Uh, it, it, I have... I don't know. I can watch some of those really bad direct-to-DVD ones with a little bit of love in my heart. Specifically, Hell World. Have you seen this one, Tyler? Number yeah. eight? <laughs> yes, that's the, the, the game, right? The oh, yeah, Hell baby. game. Yes, it's a, like an internet rave-themed direct-to-video <laughs> Hellraiser movie, which, uh, okay. Yeah, and it, it, Henry Cavill's in it, and they're all in like, some weird like techno rave, and the, 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 the slogan for it is, evil goes online, and that makes me laugh every time. Yeah, it really it really dates it, I think. I mean, that makes oh, it very yeah. much a product of that era, because you would never give a film today a tagline like that no it's hilarious it almost makes it like po- kind of post 2000s you know the 2000s are kind of in now with like fashion and music it's all kind of like kind of having a second wave uh-huh. and, and that movie kind of has that i don't know accidental 2000s aesthetic if you're gonna right. have a pinterest board about it uh if you had to pick one favorite sequel in the hellraiser realm which one would it be well definitely two choose fantasy um i i like that it keeps a similar uh i would say tone and uh similar quality to the original while sort of branching out and and going in a slightly different direction i love that uh i I love that the kirsty character uh carries over and uh i love the callbacks to the original but it really is its, its own entity to be enjoyed you know, yes. uh, as an augmentation of the first or as its own thing. And and I think I love that about it because I feel like I can't really say that about any other film in the series. I mean, no, three comes about the closest to being almost good. Sure. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it doesn't quite. It doesn't get there. Number two kind of has this like adult Jim Henson quality. It's like very fantasy in a way that I really enjoy. And it's very fun. The first one is just so dark. But the second one is less scary to me because it has this open world fantasy vibe. That's such uh, such an astute observation. I'd never thought of that before, but you're so right. It really does have a very kind of 
Jim Henson quality to it. Like, you know, I, I, I can see certain similarities like to Labyrinth with kind of mm. entering the, you know, the, in the other yep. realm, much like in the way that Jennifer Connelly's character does in Labyrinth. Uh, and God, what about the Julia skin suit? That is one of the creepiest <laughs> things I've ever seen. It's gross. I would say the only Hellraiser movie that's grosser. I don't know. I, me and Mary Beth, who also works at Dread Central, revisited Hellraiser 4 Bloodline not that long ago. And that might be the grossest one in the series. Thoughts on thoughts on this? On this I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that. I've I've oh. not seen a whole lot. Like I've seen uh, Judgment. I've seen Hellworld. I don't know that I've seen a whole lot. Oh, and then I saw the one where they recast Pinhead prior to Revelations. There was one. Yes, thank you. There was one before Judgment. Yeah, uh, Revelations where they recast Pinhead. I've seen that, and that was pretty god awful. I, mean, I hear that's the worst of all. I have not seen that one, but I do hear that's the f- most maligned. Well, this is when Dimension Films was really spitting them out because they had to by law. Are you familiar with why they were producing like $500,000 Hellraiser movies by the end there? Certainly. They wanted to maintain their rights so that they could uh, launch Mm -hmm. a reboot or, you know, continue to to monetize the property because they assume the rights would revert back to Clive Barker or whoever the original rights holder was. Yes. So they literally just spat them out. Although they did uh, give the last one, Judgment, which you've mentioned now, to, am I going to say this right? Uh, Gary Turncliffe, who is responsible for the majority of the like gore design for this franchise. And so this is an incredible artist who's like been with the series since day one. And I believe he directed Judgment. So it's nice to hear that they were keeping it in the family. Definitely. Um, and he had another one that's been trapped in development hell for a while too. So maybe we'll get to that one day. Today, we did revisit Hellraiser 3, and I have to say, I'm really excited to get there, and we're going to get there pretty soon. But before we do, I was wondering if you were comfortable with it, Tyler. Could I give you and our audience just like a bit of a seminar on this Patrick Lussier, Todd Farmer, 2011 Hellraiser moment? Oh, you bet. I think there's uh, there are very few things I would love more than that. I it's It is in my wheelhouse of, of interests, too, so I, I relate with what you just said. As we've been saying, in 2011, filmmakers, specifically I would call them horror filmmakers, Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer were writing not one, not two, but three plus treatments for Dimension Films for them to intend on rebooting this franchise theatrically. So I think one of the most important things to really get to is who are Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer? Well, we've covered them on the podcast before, all the way back with episode number two. They are responsible for a Halloween script that almost made it, but didn't quite, called Halloween 3D. You can listen to our full episode about that with Emily Gagne, if you go back in our feed. And we were talking about Dracula 2000, which is, uh, I believe, the debut directorial effort by Patrick Lussier who was a protege to Wes Craven. This guy was editing for Wes for tons of years, including a ton of his major releases like Scream and, if I'm not mistaken, New Nightmare. I think you're right. I was just going to say that, actually. Yeah, it may have been their first team up, but I don't know for sure. Maybe there was something direct to TV or something as well. These two, though, Farber and Lucier, I believe, are kind of most famous in the horror world for their remake of My Bloody Valentine, My Bloody Valentine 3D, a late 2000s classic. Uh, And Dracula 2000 was a Lucier original. In your words, my friend Tyler, um, when I asked you who's Lucier and Farmer, what would you say? Like, who are they to you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they are both talented individuals yeah. And I think that they have unique ideas. I think that uh, Todd Farmer's script for Jason X really, oh, yeah, for, for me, kind of got the franchise back on track. I mean, it, I wasn't, agree. it yeah. wasn't, you know, a terrific entry, but it was fun. It was silly. It was gory. It was all the things that fans look for. And uh, it, yeah. it just kind of shocks me that it it's not more appreciated. I'm also shocked. Tyler, this is something I think about all the time. People don't like that movie. Yes, it feels like a Canadian direct-to-video classic, but what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. Uh, (laughs) They're also a team that I think are are great individually, but even better when they're together. I think that that Farmer's scripts with Lucier's direction uh, really 
I don't know. There, there's just something about it that works. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not fine art, but that's not what it's trying to be. I mean, it's entertaining. Their their collaborations are any entertaining, fun, silly. You know, just I don't know. I mean, I I just have a great time. Yes, uh, seeing them work together, they get it as horror filmmakers. You know, they're not too precious, but they're also taking the job seriously, which is a kind of a hard balance to juggle, especially when they were working at like big budget that they were doing, which was in the late 2000s. Like that was a hard time to get horror right. And they did it. I also love Jason X. And I think they continue to get things right. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Trick, but that is... No, but I'm familiar. I love the conceit of it. Do you want to let us know, actually, in case people may not be aware? Uh, It's... God, I don't want to give too much away, uh, Mm. but it's about a a town that's haunted by a series of murders uh, around the, the Halloween holiday. Cool. And uh, it's uh, it's a little bit Giallo-esque in that uh, you, you kind of get the impression that someone within the cast is the killer, but you don't know who. And it's it's just a really inventive slasher whodunit with some uh, great kills and a, a really solid script. It's uh, mm-hmm. It deserves way more love than it gets. I, I think that it's a really quality film uh, that deserves its moment in the spotlight. Should I wait to Halloween to watch it, or can I just plop it on? Oh, you could watch it anytime. I mean, I I think that, you know, if you like it as much as I suspect you might, you may just Mm -hmm. want to rewatch it when Halloween rolls back around. I'll have it ready. It'll be in the artillery. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're fans. In case you don't know, we're fans of these two because they're cool, and they make fun horror, and fun horror is what it's all about. We mentioned this because I'm just so obsessed with it. Back in 1992, we saw our first dimension films, Hellraiser film, which is Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. But it wasn't just their first Hellraiser movie. This was the first film dimension films ever put out, which is pretty wild because uh, throughout the 90s and and 2000s, this was kind of like the major horror production company. This was Blumhouse before Blumhouse. This was like a big deal. Unfortunately, there's so much baggage associated with dimensions because of the head of house being the Weinsteins. And you can never forget about that. And we have to mention that whenever the dimension films do come up. But Hellraiser being their first film kind of gives me, I don't know, kind of like house that Pinhead built kind of energy, which is kind of fun. Absolutely. Definitely. I think that Pinhead probably did for uh, dimension what Freddie did for New Line. You know, I mean, that yeah. really was their their big bankable, you know, acquisition or, uh, you know, property. Mm-hmm. It definitely kind of put them on the map. But then they did uh, squander that franchise. And as we all know, allowed it go allowed the series to go direct to video for a long, long time. And quality suffered forever until 2022, this year, which is when we're going to see at least one big budget effort from Hulu. So this is the first time we're going to see a real Hellraiser film, if I say the word real. I don't know, since the 90s. So it should be interesting to see how that happens. But in 2011, Dimension wanted to go theatrical again. And so they decided to put out their feelers for a bunch of different pitches. And one of our episodes already on Development Hell is about a previous Dimension Hellraiser pitch by a Hollywood um, screenwriter by the name of Teddy Tannenbaum. This is the same time where we were looking to Lucier and Farmer to do the same thing. It never happened. We never got a late 2000s, early 2010s reboot. It just never came together. But it would have been cool to see what these two could have done with it. But before we get too much into what that could have looked like, would you want to talk a little bit about Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth with me, Tyler? Oh, you bet. I would love to. Um, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth is a 1992 American horror movie and the third in the Hellraiser films, directed by Anthony Hickox. Hope that's how you say that. Is it? Do you know? That, that's Hick- how I say it. Hickox. What a cool, fun name to say. And obviously stars Doug Bradley, Terry Farrell, Paula Marshall, um, and a little bit of Ashley Lawrence in there. This movie was written by our friend Peter Atkins, friend of the Hellraiser franchise for a long time. Uh, it made some modest money, about $12.5 million at the box office. And this was my first time watching it. How many times would you say you've seen this movie? Uh, well, counting uh, leading up to this podcast, I think twice. Cool. 
Not bad. Not bad. So this is this is three. Uh, no, counting oh, you know, oh, rewatching oh, it for this. I think I've seen it twice total. Um, what would you say if I put you on the spot? Gun to your head. You're <laughs> you're you're shaking. I'm about to kill you if you don't do this. What is this movie about? Oh God, I'd probably draw a blank and then I'd be dead. You're dead. I killed you, and I I meant to. I I gotta go to prison. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, what is it about? Well, we see a new protagonist. Uh, yes, and it's you know taking up the the Kirsty role, so to speak, in Joey. Uh-huh. Uh, Joey is a uh, television news reporter looking into uh, a series of violent uh, crimes, murders that have have been going on in her area. And uh, she is not bad as a protagonist. She's she's yeah. no Kir- she's no Kirsty Cotton, but uh, mm-hmm. you know she's 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 better than a you know a lot of the people that kind of take over that role in yep, the subsequent efforts. Uh, unfortunately, I would have to say that her co-stars none of them can act. I mean, oh, I loved Terry. I don't. She wasn't good. I'm not saying she can act. I'm not saying anyone in this movie can act except for Doug Bradley. I had a feeling you would like her, just the way that she kind of walks around with a cigarette and says sort of like sarcastic, you know, like goth-inspired yeah. minors. She's so iconic. I feel like I feel like we could we could popularize Terry. What would you? Okay, Terry, third build in this movie. Paula Marshall is Terry slash Dreamer Cenobite slash Skinless Lady. Who's this person? Like, what would you say her involvement in this film character Terry was? What was going on there? Well, I mean, she's she's the sometimes girlfriend of uh, JP, the the sort of uh, the, the catalyst for everything that's happening because yeah. he's the one who acquires the statue with the the, the lament configuration. Um, so so she was that at the of- end of the second one, the statue, or did the statue just come out of nowhere in this movie? You know, it might have been at the end of the second one. I'm not okay, totally okay. positive, so I don't want to speak with any kind of certainty. But <laughs> I do have a vague recollection of it maybe popping up, you know, uh-huh. in, one of the, in one of the final frames. But that'd be one of those things I'd have to go back and check to to say for sure. Okay. In, in case someone was wondering, well, there was like a statue in this movie with the lament box configuration in it, and then the, our like kind of like douchebag male lead gets a hold of it, and then Pinhead starts to like eat people through this statue, I guess. And then, like, slowly gets his powers back and, like, manipulates everyone because he wants to get out of the box. Is that, would you say that's correct? I would say that's pretty correct, but the neat thing, the one thing that I did like about this movie, and I have to say there's more that I like about it than don't like, but mm-hmm. one of the things I liked is that we get to see a little bit of Pinhead's humanity, a little bit of his, you know, pre-Pinhead existence. Oh, yeah. And not only that, it, it's not, like, you know, the Rob Zombie Halloween films where it really gives like a, a lot of backstory, uh, you know, it's or, or like, you know, the Black Christmas movie, the the 2006 remake where it, uh-huh. you know, gave you all that about Billy and Agnes. It's just a little bit of an aside, which I love because I don't like to be hit over the head with excessive backstory in follow up efforts or, or prequels or mm-hmm. or whatnot. Like, I, I think sometimes keeping the killer a mystery uh, keeping their origin story a mystery is, you know, less is more. Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, it just gives us a little bit, just a glimpse into his into his humanity, who he was prior to becoming the Hell Priest. And I, I really kind of liked that because we we see that he has a human side that we never see when he is Pinhead. Yeah, we see quite a bit of Doug Bradley in this movie as Captain Elliot Spencer. I don't know if that worked for me as someone that, like, this was my first experience with it today in 2022. Uh-huh. It was, I feel like it kind of softened Pinhead in a way that I don't know if he's meant to be softened. Um, just literally by seeing Doug Bradley's, like, normal mug. I was like, oh. It kind of, like, I don't know. It, it took away the edge for me in a way that didn't necessarily work, but I, it was absolutely interesting. And there's such a point, there's like a, a case to be made for doing it. Yeah. Because, yeah. It, it's ballsy. Definitely. Uh, I just, I think I liked that it, it didn't go too deep. You know, it, that wasn't the, you know, it wasn't a major subplot or like, you know, like the secondary storyline, it was just kind of like a tertiary 
Um, mm-hmm. We're going to throw a little bit of this in, which, you know, and, and for me, it worked. Uh, maybe on a repeat visit, you'll enjoy it more, or maybe you'll hate it even more than you did this time. Who knows? I didn't hate it. I have to say, I actually quite enjoyed it because it's just, it's camp. It's high camp. I, w- I, w- I would call this one high, high feminized camp. Especially when he like does his like hell sermon at the end, which I'm sure is like very famous because I, I do see that image pop up everywhere. Uh-huh. And, and he, they're really going Freddy Krueger with with our boy Pinhead this time around. Like, he's getting sassier, and he's very sassy in this movie. He has a lot to say, um, and he, he he's petty. He's, he's just very petty in it. So I like that they go full, like, part four Freddy with him. But uh-huh. it does make it less scary to me, and therefore, I don't know, easier to to access i guess i, I agree i agree that it's definitely less scary than the first two um you know the the tone is is definitely a little bit different and i think that the the acting just not being that great takes me out of the film a lot yeah and that in turn kind of makes it less scary for me it kind of felt a little bit just like a little bit like the third Candyman movie uh-huh have the, you seen what's it called day, day, of, the day of the dead yeah yeah, yeah. have you seen Candyman three day of the dead I don't know that I have. Uh, I really do enjoy the first two in the original canon. Of course. Uh, um, but yeah, I, oh, sorry. That's I've just fine. never heard um, anything good about the third, so I, I haven't really made a point to speak terrible. it out. Do it's you have really Oh, it, it, it's, it's heinous. It's heinous. But um, I, I just love trash direct-to-video sequels, so don't ask me. I'm not the one. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I don't count. Uh, so... I want to talk about the Cenobites in this movie. Is that okay with you? Oh, that's very much okay with me. <laughs> the ones that stand out in your brain. For me, gotta be DJ. The the I think it's just the DJ Cenobite with his the the CDs in the head, and then he kills you with CDs too. He throws them at you, and you explode. Right, and I think he shoves one inside of his head like a you know like a dashboard CD player in a car. Yes, um, and that's pretty tremendous. Like I. You know, incredible. It, oh wait, there's a DJ Cenobite and a CD Cenobite. Am I confusing the two? It's there... possible that you might be. I don't think interesting because there got to be. That sounds like two different dudes. So I'm thinking definitely of the CD Cenobite. Right. That's just popping out. He's like one of those car car CD players from like the late '90s where you could put like five in at once. Yes. Yes. Like a yeah. five disc changer. Absolutely. Yes. 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 That's what he is to me. Very practical. <laughs> um, um, do, would, if I, would you say you have a favorite Cenobite in this movie? Uh, well, it would probably be him. I mean, he's yes. certainly the most memorable. And oh, yeah. uh, he definitely plays into the whole, uh, you know, kind of idea that that film is very much a snapshot of its era. You know, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't like see that for the first time today and be like, oh, wow, was that made in the last few years, maybe? No, no, it could only have happened in 1992, right. where I'm assuming CDs were still kind of new and popular, but had been around long enough to become accessible. So I feel yeah. like it's got to be, bang, 1992 only. Yeah. Um. Uh, okay, all right. There's also the Camerahead Cenobite in it, which... Um, the characters when he was alive, his name was Ken Carpenter, which I don't like because that seems heavy handed. So there is a person in this movie that is her, like the lead character, Joey, like her camera guy. You would, I would you say like, he's like yes. the, the, the news, like camera man. Yes. And, um, he's sort of like a mentor to her in the movie. He's very nice to her. And then I guess he gets kind of taken by, by pinhead at one point and then his camera gets like absolved into his head and then it, i guess it also can like turn into a flamethrower or a gun <laughs> or it does like bad stuff too like you don't want to be on camera because you it'll kill you and, and it's so has, silly he has like a like the lens or like the scope whatever it's called coming out of his eye <laughs> yeah oh it's out of the eyeball of course yes yes he has the scope eyeball and it just looks like there's a bunch of putty like um just like shoved on his head to hold it there like they they didn't try the hardest <laughs> i would say with him but they also didn't try that hard with jp monroe when he turns into the piston head i was confused by this i wasn't exactly 100% sure of what was going on so jp and monroe that like hot evil guy that dies uh-huh. you remember the cenobite that he turned into i didn't really understand what that was and why he had to like 
click it and like it was like doing stuff was it a gun oh it was a gun because piston means gun right i think he might have had a gun i don't know people are probably yelling at me in their car like obviously it's not so sorry everybody <laughs> There's also the dreamer Cenobite, who was the Cenobite version of our friend Terry, who we've talked about earlier, the sort of goth tragic figure that we're not really sure what she was doing in this movie. Um, right. Classic Cenobites. Classic uh, Cenobite lineup in this one that I, you know, were kind of new and fun for me. Yeah, I I, I felt like Terry was kind of under you, underutilized as a Cenobite. Mm. I mean, she didn't get... She had much better lines in her human role as compared to her turn as a Cenobite, which was unfortunate because, you know, she had some really kind of silly, quippy uh, things to say. And Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like they could have done a little more with that. I love her hair too, as as I think I've mentioned before. Straight and black, very goth girl into it. Um, Yeah. So we were talking about before Joey, our lead character in this one, who kind of is, replacing Kirsty to to middling returns she's okay like she i think she could have been worse it may have been her writing the the actor terry farrell may have done an okay job in my opinion did she like do you think it was more the acting that was bringing it down or do you think she could have heightened it if she was a little stronger uh i I feel like almost everything about the movie could be improved in one way or another so it may be a case of a little bit of both but I I don't know. I feel like all things considered, she did well. I mean, she's certainly the most relatable character in the movie. And she's the only person in the movie other than Doug Bradley with any real prowess at acting. So mm-hmm. I have to give her that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that it was very middle of the road. And I think when it comes to a third Hellraiser movie, like there are worse things that you can be. So Terry Farrell, you... Uh... You got it. She also has a very funny line. Oh, yeah. Where she's, like, talking to a priest. And she's like, there's there's demons. And the priest is like, no, they're just metaphors. And then Pinhead busts through the door. And she's like, well, then what the hell is that? And I'm still <laughs> laughing. Or maybe she says fuck. But she says something funny. And I thought that was, that was like, an interesting line for the priest to say. Um, you know, just because, like, uh, unless you're some kind of very, like, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Unitarian type religion. Normally, you accept, you know, if you're like entrenched in the Christian faith, you accept that, you know, the Bible's meant to be taken literally. So I thought that was a really interesting choice uh, by the screenwriter to to actually have him say that because it, I don't know, mm-hmm. kind of flies in the face of a lot of uh, the kind of popular tenets of Christianity. It's interesting. I I clocked that too. I thought that that was kind of a nice perspective for. A man of cloth to have. It might kind of speak to writer Peter Atkins, who's been around quite a long time in the Hellraiser world, that he, like, kind of, like... Okay, the, the writing of this movie is not, like, the best in the whole world, <laughs> but he's got some chops. He he makes some interesting choices, um, even in this movie, and, and I have to say, in the fourth one, too, even though that's fairly maligned, he thinks outside of the box, and that is a... Uh, a pun? Is that a pun? Like you know, like the oh, Hellraiser box. Yes, yes, no, definitely. I I think that counts as a pun. That thank is. You, thank, uh... you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um. So, do you have a, do we have any final thoughts on Hellraiser three Hell on Earth before we move along? Um, anything? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Which is just to say that I had very mixed feelings about the uh, sequence near the beginning where the patient on the stretcher comes in with the chains attached oh, and bursting yeah. from electric shock until his head explodes. Uh, that felt a little too extravagant to be so close to the beginning because I feel like if you're going to do that at the start of your movie, you have to continuously one-up that with each subsequent kill and nothing one-upped that. You know, the finale was a lot of fun, but it was nowhere near as, you know, outrageous as that. So mm-hmm. in some ways it kind of falls flat because it's great, but then it's like everything that comes thereafter feels like it pales by comparison. I agree completely. And also it's confusing when it does happen right at the top. You're like, it's strange that this man still... Seeing someone have those hell world chains on them in a naturalistic setting without Pinhead was very weird. It's like, I don't think those should be visible right now. Like, with a bunch of doctors in the bright, like, fluorescent lighting, these chains 
are visible. It didn't really make any sense to me. I had the exact same reaction. That whole scene felt very surreal. Like, is this a dream? Because this doesn't feel like this should really actually be happening in the real world right now. This feels like, you know, uh, like a dark fantasy or a dream or a nightmare, but it doesn't feel like this is what's actually going on. Um, it, it It felt kind of clunky and out of place for me. I agree. I feel like it didn't really uh, make sense. And yeah, it doesn't really get to that level throughout the rest of the film. It's a middling Hellraiser movie. You know, it's not the worst one, but it ain't anywhere near the height of the first two. So I don't know. Would you say there's been a like um, a wave of appreciation with this movie in, in recent years? Or do you think that hasn't happened for it yet? I haven't heard a lot of people singing its praises. Um, Horror journalist Nat Bremer is not a staunch supporter of the film, but he definitely will defend it. You Mm -hmm. know, I've seen him him write about kind of what it could have been or what it tried to be. And he seems to always think of it positively. But I can't think of a lot of other people off the top of my head that, you know, really uh, sing that film's praises. Yeah, I it's it's just not great, and that's okay. You know, I I I celebrate that for this movie. Um, my final thought on it is this movie. I think because of it, I can't say for sure. I, one of the things I say a lot lately is I'll just call stuff hell on earth. Like if I don't like it, I'll be like, oof, that's hell on earth. And I must have taken that from this, right? Because like I'm not sure where else I would have heard that. Although, I, is it just a popular? idiom i think that is a popular idiom i mean i think that's something you know my mom would say when i was growing up like (laughs) you know before that movie had even come out so i i think they adapted that because it was fitting as a subtitle i think i have a psychic connection to this movie actually and that that makes so much more sense it's just me and this movie actually hell on earth so i i I don't know why you're discrediting that but um (laughs) Uh, out of five, what do you give this? Um, out of five bloody chains, how many bloody chains are you giving to Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth? It's hard to say because I feel like it's middle of the road, but I also want to say it's a three because mm-hmm. I feel like a two and a half would be too low, but a three Pretty almost feels too high. So maybe like a 2.75. I am not a fan of a 2.75 or, or a 2.25, but you know what? You're right. It is Three is too high for this movie, but 2.5 does feel too low. So it's in the lim- the liminal space. It's, it's so a, it's close to being really good. I mean, it has a really balls-to-the-wall finale, and it has some great sequences, and it has an okay character in Joey, and the JP situation is kind of interesting, like how he's you know bringing in uh, women to seduce like Julia was doing with men. So, I mean, there there are so many things about it that are good, but nothing great, and Mm-mm. some things that are less than good. So, it you know, it makes it a hard one to to give a rating to and feel totally fair about it. Well, I'm waiting. Oh, you so you said 2.75. I agree. This is a C plus. We love it. And we'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll watch it many more times before I die. Um, I actually well. liked it more the second time. I think the first time I was so disappointed that I said never again. Yeah, because uh, it's, not, it's not the first two, no way. No, it's not, but... I think I was almost pleasantly surprised this time just to see that it had some of the characteristics that make the first two great. Uh, so it was, I don't know, that that made me appreciate it more than I did the last time. You know, I'll never, I'll never call it a great film and, you know, I'll never say that it gets everything right, but it, it's better than I remembered. So, you know, that is something positive I can say about it. And it, it sort of was the reason for the direction horror took in the 90s because I... I don't know, it had a major influence with Dimension Films coming about. It was the very first film, as we said, to ever be released through them. And then fast forward through the future. You get to 2011, and Dimension Films are like, we want Hellraiser back. We want to put Pinhead back in theaters. And who are they going to? They're going to Todd Farmer and Patrick Lussier for a bunch of treatments. So, as we promised... We're going to get in a little bit into what this movie could have looked like under Farmer and Lucier, based on a couple of articles from Bloody Disgusting and, honestly, some cool quotes from Patrick Lucier himself as he did a bunch of interviews around 2010 to 2015 era. Um, would, I, would you mind if I, if I gave you a couple of these quotes from the mouth of Lucier himself? No, I can't think of anything I'd enjoy more at this moment. 
were fans. So in 2010, he was speaking to MoviePhone, and there's an interesting quote. He said, on the film, we are officially a go. We want to work within the massive Hellraiser mythology that exists and create something unique. We think Clive's film stands on its own. We think it's brilliant. It had such a specific dark vision that at the time was unlike anything that had come before it. So to just remake a movie of his, but with more money, is not something that we wanted to do. We wanted to work within the Hellraiser lexicon. Um, were you familiar that around this time that there were rumors they were trying to go PG-13 with this franchise? I did hear some rumblings about that. And I remember just thinking, wow, what a fool's errand, you know, to try to take uh, a very adult movie that's like almost pushing NC-17, you know, and then market it as, oh, this is kind of family friendly. Yeah, really weird. Like, just to, just the subject matter to talk about in conversation would get it up to PG-13. I don't know how they would have ever managed to do that. But these rumors were addressed by um, Patrick Lussier in the same interview. And this is what he had to say about that. He said, oh, God, no. We definitely did not want to do that. We wanted to make a grown-up movie. The sequels all went on to be smaller in scope, but our idea was that if we were going to make it, let's be epic and explore the doorways and opportunities Clive created. Always keeping in mind that he, um, what he did and how he did it. There's a part of this world that we're not allowed to see because there's never been the resources to show it. So let's show it. Ugh. God, poor babies. I really wish they could have made their movie. But I like what they're saying about Clive Barker here, because Clive Barker is kind of the king, in some ways, of epic horror, especially with his literature. Are you um how, are are you a Clive Barker fan? Like, do you have like a history sort of standing Clive? Uh, I wouldn't say that I have a history of standing him. I yeah. uh, haven't delved into his literary works nearly as much as I would like to say that I have. Um, but I have truthfully a lot of blind spots in terms of literature. Like I didn't start reading Stephen King until I was in my thirties and um, you know, mm -hmm. I will eventually get around to reading as much of Clive's work as possible. Uh, but really my appreciation for him mostly stems from adaptions like Midnight Meat Train, Candyman, mm -hmm. Hellraiser, etc. Cool. Uh, so no, I, I can't say that I'm as well versed in his uh, prose as mm -hmm. I wish that I was. Same. I'm the same as you. The one uh, novella of his that I've read is The Hellbound Heart, which honestly is quite similar to Hellraiser. Like it, it's not a completely different kettle of fish don't know if that's a saying i think that is but that's one of the really neat things about it is that you know you've got the creator in control uh you know writing the screenplay and you know putting his touches on it rather than you know being so far removed uh from the process and not even really recognizing uh what he started out with and uh i love a queer horror icon we don't have too many of them yet they're starting to grow but especially for the 80s and before, having someone like Clive Barker in the machine was just like really inspiring. Yeah, you know, no, as a queer absolutely. creator in the space too. So absolutely. Yeah. I would love to see more creators write and direct adaptations. And I know that maybe we don't mm. see that as much because of, you know, maximum overdrive. Uh, you know, where yeah. Stephen King tried to, you know, kind of take the directorial reins and failed sort of miserably, uh, at least uh, according to most uh, fans and critics and anyone that's seen the movie. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, Clive Barker really proved that uh, that can go quite well, as well as going, you know, off the rails, insanely bad. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I agree with you. I think Stephen King kind of gave it a bad name, but I love to see it. And I think I'd like to see it more, especially from queer people. Um, yeah. I have a couple more quotes that I'd like to deliver from Lucier from around this time. So he was on the Movie Crypt podcast. Are you familiar with these guys? Oh, of course, with uh, yeah. Adam and Joe. Yes, yes. So he was on that podcast. I forget what year this was. And he was talking about this film. And here's what he had to say. So the, the idea essentially was that we never got to see the story of Frank getting the box from the first film. So imagine if Frank is actually the darkest version of Jack Bauer from 24 
and Nicolas Cage basically from National Treasure. It would have been the evil National, <laughs> National Treasure movie. I don't know how serious he is about this, but I, I actually see exactly what he means in terms of like scope and archetype of character. Um, it being a Frank movie. Did this make sense to you as a quote? Like, could you see what he was saying or do you think he's being silly? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't feel like I see... I, I don't feel like I identify with the quote as much as you do. I I, mm-hmm. I remember reading that and just kind of thinking, well, you know, I mean, how how does, you know, the head of a counter-terrorist unit become <laughs> this, like, I don't know, uh, pleasure and pain seeking like freak of a character. I, I just couldn't really meld the two together. So maybe it helps that I've never seen 24. Maybe that helps. Maybe it helps my cause. I feel like that would help a lot. Have you seen National Treasure? No, but that I have interest in. That I think I'd enjoy. But no, well, I haven't seen either. Okay. Well, but, but I mean, both of those are like good guys, like, you know, trying to, I mean, neither one of them is even like an anti-hero. So imagining one of them as Frank, ha- being familiar with both of those properties was really hard for me to sort of see. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I think I see it as more of there, there's this protagonist in Frank that is having to go on this epic like journey to the center of the earth basically because of this box so we have this like gross character who's like escaping hell but you're gonna open the scope and have him sort of be on this like high high intensity treasure hunt basically and i think that could have been kind of fun but isn't he also kind of the new pinhead in that script yes so interesting you were saying this yes so in at least one of these three treatments these two guys were coming up with Yes, Uncle Frank from the first film was essentially going to portray the new pinhead. He was going to be the big, scary archetype. And on that, uh, from the same podcast, from the movie Crypt episode, Patrick Boussier says, uh, in the beginning, Frank is going to get the box, but he's in Shanghai. He gets caught and they hold him down and they hammer these fucking nails into his head, but he gets free and he kills everyone. But he, he does get the box, which is being held by this guy who looks like he's all bloated and has been ripped apart by Cenobites. <laughs> Frank steals the box and then bad things happen. Yeah, this bloated guy we're going to get to more later. Mule was his name in one of these scripts. It's really gross. But yeah, it seems, it does seem like, you know, he was probably, Frank was going to get some pins in his head at some point in the you script. you think Patrick Lucier should be using such spicy language, though? I don't know. He, yeah, you're right. I don't think it, it feels comfortable coming from such like a proper proper gentleman. Yeah, I don't know if he Todd should. Farmer, yes. Todd Farmer, I see it for. But I could definitely see it from Todd Farmer. I oh I, I would expect it. I would be disappointed if it didn't oh, come from Todd following Farmer. Following him on social media, I could definitely see it from him. <laughs> I believe you on that. Just and I love that for him. I love that brand. But yeah, I, I agree. Todd uh Lucia kind of seems so 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 like um soft spoken to me, but a little I don't more know him. reserved. Yeah, like a like British energy. Don't know the guy, so maybe he's really buck wild. Who knows? You know, maybe he's out here being crazy. Well, maybe either way, should, I support him. Maybe you should have him on here to defend himself and his use of spicy language. I would love that, Patrick Lucy. If you're listening, let's chat some more. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I like. So, what do you think of Uncle Frank, who in the first film was this? basically, as you were saying, you brought up the word catalyst earlier, but he's the one that unleashes the box, gets sent to hell, and throughout the first film is communicating with some evil lady named Julia to try to help bring him back. And so in this Lucier film, we were going to focus possibly on this character. I would say he is not the reason that I am here in this franchise. It's all about Julia. Why aren't we talking about her? That's how I feel. I think that's a great point. I think Julia is a really tremendous character. You know, she's a strong female character. She's got distinct anti-hero slash villain energy. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine the original without her. She's in many ways perhaps the most memorable character of that, how ruthless she is and how desperate to get laid she is. She um, wants it. And it can't be that good because he doesn't have any skin, but she doesn't care. Well, I mean, they certainly had some good times together in the past to make her, you know, resort to murder to bring him back so she can, so she can, 
once again, you know, do those things. Uh, I was listening to um, a, a fellow Dread podcast network show, Girl That's Scary, not long ago, and they were talking about Hellraiser. Check out that episode if you haven't already. And they said something along the lines of, I hope this is verbatim, but basically, like, no dick is worth that. And I think I stand by that. Like, no dick is worth that level of gross, bloody mess. Like, it's I, I just not worth that. it. I will co-sign that statement for sure. Thank you. You know, I think it's a fairly controversial statement, but I think it needed to be said. <laughs> By not me, but our friends at Girl That's Scary. Yeah, it's just not worth it, Julia. You can find other sickos. There's so many of them out there. Um, Certainly. Uh, I, I, I assume it's probably more than just the, the phallus for her. But, uh, yes. but, but, yeah. but I think the phallus is the metaphor. I think when they, when they say <laughs> dick, I think the dick is the metaphor for the man. That's, think, that's my interpretation. I think you're right. I was just being, I was just being. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Tyler, would you be interested in hearing a little bit of the details from one of these three Lucier Farmer treatments about Hellraiser? Oh yeah, definitely. There was a cool article in 2019 on Bloody Disgusting by Brad Mitzka, where he where he got a hold of one or two of these treatments and basically kind of um, gave us a bit of a synopsis, and they're pretty interesting. Basically, the toy maker engineer from the fourth one and prior is included, which is kind of cool, but they also included new facets of mythology in this treatment. They have these people called toy breakers, which is kind of the inversion of the toy maker, I suppose. Uh, a secret group of people that all they want to do is find and destroy all possible gateways to hell. And I think that's a great way to dedicate your time. <laughs> um, so in this breakdown by Mitzka, we get a character by the name of Lisa, who's orphaned as a baby. And so we have this big opening sequence where you see how she's orphaned. Her whole house explodes. It's really scary and sad and her parents die. But we're introduced to two of the main Cenobites of the film by the name of Black and White. And they're sort of like, you know, like opposites, the yin, the yin and yang of hell, which is, I think, a little silly. Um, and we also meet early on the main big monster evil dude of this film. And his name is Glass. And he's basically a Cenobite with like stained glass coming out of his head, which I think is actually kind of cool. So... We also meet these two main toy breakers by the name of Blythe and Truman. These are the dudes that all they want to do is cut off all the gateways to hell. And further down the line, we're seeing Lisa as a young adult, like 19 or something, with a bunch of her friends. And these are our lead characters in this film. Early on, they're hospitalized after a car wreck. And we see at the hospital, there's this overweight man by the name of Mule. And I believe, if I recall correctly, this guy was also responsible for the death of her family at the beginning. So we see that she's sort of not able to escape the puzzle box. Like, the puzzle box is always coming for you, Lisa. Don't you forget it. So Mule arrives and, like, cuts the puzzle box out of his tummy, which is sad. I don't like that for Mule. <laughs> and, yeah. So the puzzle box arrives. Presumably someone opens it. And the hospital is overrun by Cenobites, minor sort of like government level Cenobites referred to as the low bites, which I don't like because it reminds me of low lights. And I don't think Cenobites need that. Pinna shows up and is defeated fairly quickly. And that is a very quick rundown of what could have sort of happened in maybe one of these treatments. Um, what, do you, what did you take from that little story I told you? Did any of that land in your heart? Did that make sense at all to you? I mean, how did, how did I do personally? That's what I'm. That's well, what I. You did great because you always do. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I I think that it just sounds kind of epic. I mean, it's possible it could have gone horribly wrong, but it just sounds so epic and and so uh, expensive and so mm -hmm. kind of polished. And and I would have loved to have seen that realized. I think that you know it's been so long since we've seen a big budget Hellraiser movie, and I know that we have one coming to Hulu. Uh, but I mean, that would have been, that would have been pretty major and it, it'd just be interesting to see where the franchise would be now mm -hmm. had that trilogy of films actually been realized. Uh, mm -hmm. wasn't 3d fatigue kind of setting in by that point or did that not start until later? Do you think? I, I think it's gotta have been, it could not have been long after the, the peak. 
which was like, what 2009 well, so, yeah. isn't it interesting though how farmer and lucier kind of kick-started the the 3d thing with my bloody invented Valentine? it invented it <laughs> invented yeah. it okay yeah, yeah, they were there, 1933, first time, they <laughs> will never die. Yeah, I, I think for sure, at least in the horror realm, because everything after that, like, we learned they were the go-to guys. Like, we wanted a Halloween 3D, we wanted a Hellraiser 3D, like, we were, they were throwing every franchise at these two after they did that one. I remember interviewing Todd Farmer for my blog when I just first started writing, and cool. uh, I think I remember him saying that the 3d cameras were like the size of a refrigerator and i oh just God. find that so interesting to to How think do you about move that? i want to see that in action i i know i know I, I mean i'm sure that it's much different now i imagine the technology has uh you know become much smaller it's just a pair of google glasses that's right. all it probably is just like fact. put it on greta gerwick and you got a movie um, indeed I'd well, she has movie. the she kind of has the golden touch, doesn't she? I cannot wait. She's making a Barbie movie, and it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. I don't know about you, but I feel ready to land into conclusion territory. How do you feel about that? Oh yeah, definitely. Let's conclude this shit. So you may be aware, maybe you're not aware, but on this podcast, we decide we are the suits. We will say if this stands a shot at the green light. But if it doesn't, that's up to us too. So this is a lot of weight on our shoulders. So Tyler, I have to say, I have to ask, will we ever see a Farmer Lucier Hellraiser movie at some point in the future? I mean, if it were up to me, yes, we absolutely will. Realistically speaking, probably not. It, it yeah. I can't think of too many instances where a project has fallen through and someone has gone back to that screenwriter and said, oh, I want you to do this again. So mm-hmm. realistically speaking, I don't I don't think there's any chance. But, you know, yeah. if, if if I were the one green lighting it, you know, it would go into production tomorrow. Well, it looks like we got to give them a call because they're <laughs> they're going to Hollywood. What is next for Hellraiser? Tyler, do you know? Are you familiar with what's going on with this franchise? Well, uh, I know that we have a female pinhead coming up in a in a big budget sort of reimagining relaunch of the franchise. Yeah, uh, but I don't know a lot of details, so I'd love it if you could fill in the gaps. So we have our friend David Bruckner, who is kind of a new kid to the horror scene. He directed, I believe his first film was The Ritual for Netflix, a very spooky in the woods horror. And then this year he released, I was, you know, a, a big horror moment, which was The Night House, which was on a lot of people's best of the year list. Was it on yours, Tyler? No, it was not, but that was not necessarily an omission mm-hmm. more so than I just didn't get to it in time. Uh, you know, fair enough. Um, it's an interesting one. It, it, it's definitely thinking outside of the box. It's very spooky, existential horror. There are some Hellraiser mm, like grotesqueness to it that might be an interesting slide over. Who knows? So uh, this is a, a choice of director that I am interested in. And seeing what he does with it. And yes, we have our first um, female pinhead, which is so exciting. And it's going to Hulu. So I assume that means it's going to be direct to streamer. So I don't know that we might have diff- like mm, maybe different mixed feelings on that. Because it'd be nice to see a Hellraiser movie in theaters. But don't you think, though, that there's a huge difference between direct-to-video and direct-to-streaming? Because direct-to-streaming mm-hmm. can have a 30 $40, 50000000 dollar budget. Yep, absolutely. But it does kind of still feel like it's in the middle. No matter how big the budget, doesn't it kind of still feel like it's not getting... It just feels, I don't know. It's an emotional thing. I don't uh, have that association with it necessarily because I think that in in some ways, streaming is kind of the the next chapter for, you know, big budget films. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or maybe not the next chapter, but it's, it's a perfectly respectful... Uh, alternative to theatrical and and some of the streamers like amazon will even release some of their stuff into theaters so it's becoming the lines are becoming blurred and you know i I don't think of uh direct to streaming as less than in any way necessarily uh interesting i i think that it's it, it can very much be on a par with i mean there are theatrical films that are made for so much cheaper than uh stuff that's made direct for streaming so it's hard for me to see it in any way as not entirely equal just on the basis of where it's launching you know what you're changing my mind you're here you're changing the world and that's important 
Well, and I'm here and I'm queer, so get mm-hmm. we're, we're here and we're queer. Get used yes. to it. it. Imagine if someone hadn't known that. They were like, Josh is straight. Well, now illusion is shattered. Oh, um, no, I've just... I've no, just you outed me. How dare you? I am actually straight, though. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, actually. Yeah, that's crazy that you think that. Uh, Tyler, my friend, yes. where, where can you be found on the internet if you want to? To be found. Oh, well, I would like to be found. Uh, and mm-hmm. you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fun With Horror, F U N W I T H H O R R O R. And you can also find me at facebook.com slash Fun With Horror. I like to just keep it simple, you know? I love it. Keep, I, that, I username, keep that username the same across the platforms. So please look for me. And he will be found. Thank you so much. This has been a really fun one. It flew by. Stay where you are. I'm going to hit stop, but I don't want you going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home Yes, cool! or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.